turn in your Bible to Acts 14 tonight. Let's jump right in. Acts chapter number 14. All it takes is a simple uh, Google search. By the way, I I'm, I'm, was going to preach this message this morning, so that's why I'm in Acts 14 tonight. But all it takes is, is just go on Google for, for a couple of minutes and type in stories of human endurance. And there's going to be all kinds of examples that pop up throughout human history. Um, I, I'm going to read a couple of those to you. They're very, very interesting. On, on average, they say a tennis match lasts about three and a half hours. Um, they say a long game can go up to five hours. But during the 2010 Wimbledon Championships, John Isner and Nicholas Mahute, maybe is his name, uh, played a match that lasted for over 11 hours. The longest contest in professional tennis history. The match consisted, check this out, of 183 games held over the course of three days with the longest set going for over eight hours. John Isner won and had the worst case of tennis elbow in history. <laughs> I'm not lying. It's crazy. Uh, I read a story about boxing. It said in the days before ringside judges and state commissions, boxers would duke it out until one man was left standing. The survival of the fittest approach to the sport often resulted in endless brawls. On April 6, 1893... Andy Bowen and Jack Burke. I didn't even know they wore their diapers to, to fight back then, but that's the picture Joyce found for me. So it's not true. I text it to her. He said, what's the closest thing to Mike at nine o'clock at night? Oh, it's good. They fought in their diapers for an unbelievable 111 three-minute rounds. They traded blows for seven hours and 19 minutes. You know the worst part of that story? It ended in a tie. Like, no way, man. If I'm doing that, you're going to have to kill me. Benoit Lecomte, one of the greatest long-distance swimmers to ever live, he's credited with being the first person to successfully swim across the Atlantic Ocean without the benefit of a kickboard. He doggy paddled for around 73 days. He covered approximately 3,716 miles of deep sea to complete his goal. He began in Massachusetts and he swam in two-hour sessions for up to eight hours a day until he reached his goal over two months later in France. Tom Cytus, uh, maybe? That's how you pronounce the last name? He's one of the world's leading free divers. He set records for swimming to depths of nearly 700 feet without the aid of oxygen tanks. They say he has amazing lung capacity. That helped him set a record, Guinea's uh, Book World Record, December 30, 2008, when he submerged himself underwater. I don't believe this, but it's in there. He submerged himself underwater for 17 minutes and 19 seconds. I don't know, y'all. That's, that's a good preacher story, though. <laughs> Daniel uh, Scully. Holds the world record. Tanner brought this one to me. Holds the world record for the longest plank. Tanner's working on breaking this record. After holding the position for a total of nine hours, 30 minutes. I walk into his office sometimes. He's in a plank with his Bible and his nose. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Studying for a sermon. No, he doesn't do that. But you know what's even more impressive is the guy that before Daniel Scully held this record. His name was George Hook. He was 62 years old former U.S. Marine, and he planked for eight hours, 15 minutes, and 15 seconds. That's like my dad planking for eight hours, y'all. That ain't happening. That's crazy. 
It's called endurance, right? Endurance. Definition is this, sustaining an unpleasant or difficult process without giving up. These stories I told, I think, are remarkable examples of human endurance. And in tonight's message, we're going to see another remarkable example of endurance. But it's not enduring for the sake of a tennis match or a boxing match or a Guinness World Record. It's not even really physical endurance as much as it is a story of spiritual endurance. Two missionaries who endured for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The missionaries are Paul and Barnabas who who had believed this good news for themselves and now they were giving their lives, literally, willing to give their lives to share it with others no matter what it cost them. As we studied a few weeks ago, Paul and Barnabas, the beginning part of chapter 13 teaches us that they were sent out of the church of Antioch to go on this missionary journey to take the good news of Jesus to places where it had never been before. Our task tonight here in chapter 14 is to study the last leg of their journey, which consisted of this, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, and then their return trip back to Antioch. In each of these stops, we're going to learn something about enduring for the gospel's sake from these two missionaries. And I say enduring because that's actually how the Apostle Paul described what he learned from this part of the journey when he was telling young Timothy years later about it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me where? At Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. He's talking about Acts 14. And he says this, What persecutions I, next word, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. So Paul clearly saw the events we're going to be talking about tonight as stories of endurance. A trip of endurance that that we should learn from and emulate in our own lives as we try to live out and share the good news of Jesus with those around us. So, So let's go on this last leg of the missionary journey with these fellas and see what we can learn about enduring for the gospel's sake. That's the title of the message, Enduring. For the gospel's sake. Let's begin with endurance in Iconium. Tammy, I just remembered I forgot to print off the updated notes. So you're just going to have to go with me tonight. Look at verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake. That a great multitude, both of the Jews and also the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil, affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So, so Paul and Barnabas were very successful in this synagogue in Iconium. Many people got saved as a result of their teaching and preaching of the gospel. But as always, their message solicited a mixed response. While many got saved, many got upset. And those that got upset, we just read it, slandered the missionaries and tried to turn people against their influence. But what did our text say in verse number three? Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. The syntax is really kind of weird there. It just talks about even though they got persecuted, they still stayed a long time because they had boldness. That's what it means. And this is where we get the first lesson on endurance. We ought to endure with boldness and wisdom. Now let's talk about this. Do you realize 
where Paul just left before he came to Iconium and what happened there. He just left from preaching in another synagogue, in another place called Antioch, where the Jews tried to do the same thing. They stirred up persecution against the missionaries. They attacked them and drove them out of town. Yet catch this, here he is again in another community and the first place they go is to a synagogue. They courageously go right into a place where they know there's a good chance of opposition and persecution. And sure enough, they were attacked in this synagogue as well. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever known that you would be opposed for speaking faithfully for Christ in a certain situation and yet you did so anyway? Did you catch that question? They knew if they went into another synagogue... That their good news of Jesus wouldn't be received well by the Jews. It would be an uncomfortable, vulnerable, and risky place. So let me ask you, have you ever known that your stand or message for Christ would be opposed, but you said it anyway? You went there anyway. You invited them anyway. Young people, listen to me. Have you ever taken a stand for the Lord in front of a friend that you knew would disapprove and look at you like you were weird? Have you ever done that? How about some of us at work? Have you ever initiated a gospel conversation to a coworker that you knew would be most resistant in your workplace? Or do you usually work around that guy or that lady? Have you ever boldly invited the lost family member to church who you knew was the least interested and would almost certainly say no? If so, you have put yourself in an uncomfortable place. That's what Paul did. I'm asking, have you ever known that you would be opposed for speaking up for Christ and did so anyway? Here's the truth. In our Western culture, we like safe and comfortable evangelism, not risky and vulnerable evangelism. So what do we need then to be able to take the gospel to uncomfortable places and to uncomfortable people? We need the boldness of the Lord. That's what our text says in verse three that Paul and Barnabas had within them. That's why they kept going back into uncomfortable places with the gospel. That's why they stayed for a long time in an uncomfortable, risky place. Because they were speaking boldly for the Lord. You need boldness, friend. I need boldness. How do we get it? We won't go there, but Acts chapter 3 and 4 tell us you pray for it. That's what Peter and John did when they were standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Had to give an answer. They were unlearned and ignorant men. They were untrained in many ways. They had never stood on trial in that way before. Well, I should say Peter has and he failed the last time. But he prayed, God, give me boldness. And he filled them with the Holy Ghost and gave them boldness from heaven. And he, the, the, the men marveled. These guys have been with Jesus, they said. You don't have within you, I don't care what your personality is. You don't have within you, I don't care what your strategy is for soul winning. I don't care how well you know the Romans rolled. You don't have within your human capacity the ability to go to an uncomfortable place, to an uncomfortable person, and speak up every time the Holy Spirit tells you. You need something from heaven. Every day in your prayer list should be a prayer for boldness. But you don't just need boldness, you need wisdom. Look at verses four, and seven, 4 through 7. But the multitude of the city, we're still in Iconium, was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. 
They were aware of it. Speaking out the missionaries, they become aware of it. And fled into Lystra and Derby, cities of, of Laconia, and under the region that lieth round about, and there they preached the gospel. Watch here, this is, this is really practical. While there's a time to stick, stick it out and kind of stay with boldness, in the missionary's mind, watch here, there was also a time to be smart and get out of there. That's where wisdom comes into play. When the verbal opposition started to turn into physical uh, threats, the missionary said, it's no longer wise to be bold. It's now wise to leave. See, they were brave, but they weren't stupid. There was a good balance of perseverance and prudence. And here's what we learn. Sometimes the best way to make the gospel known is to stay, is to speak, is to remain. But at other times, the best way to get the gospel known is to go to the next person. Is to go to the next place. Is to move on. Are you following this? They had to live to share the gospel another day. Wisdom told them, if we stay out of stubbornness, if we speak out of stubbornness, if we go back another day to that synagogue, they're going to stone us. And now none of these churches are going to get planted. Wisdom said, move on. That was after a season of boldness. But at some point... They moved on. Young people, listen, when a friend is continually living in sin, I want you to hear this. When a friend is continually living in sin, despite your bold stand against it, you may need to eventually move on to another friend. When a coworker is continually resistant to the gospel, despite your best efforts, you may need to move on to sharing the gospel with another coworker. When witnessing to a family member is actually creating more and more strife in the rest of the family and it's really not helping anybody, you may need to hold off for a little bit. That doesn't mean we never speak about God to them ever again. It doesn't mean we ever, uh, we, we, we never invite that friend to church again. It may mean that you need to start spending more time talking to God about them than talking to them about God. Oftentimes we hear this phrase in the Bible, we shake the dust off of our feet. You study that out, it just basically means, it's kind of a, a, a symbol of judgment. They're, they're just basically saying, God, they're yours now. And at some point, that friend, that coworker, that family member, you just got to give them to God at some point. And that's wise. Sometimes the most unwise thing to do is to stay when you need to move on. How do I know? You just got to ask for wisdom. So in the same prayer every day, you say, Holy Spirit, today I need boldness to know when to stay and speak. But I need wisdom to know when to be quiet and move on. Somebody say amen. Amen. That's just practical wisdom. That's what we learn in Iconium. All right. They're going to leave. They're going to go to a place called Lystra. Let's see their endurance in Lystra. Now, where, where was Lystra? What kind of place was this? I want to give you some context and we'll just kind of take it verse by verse. It was a small country town in Paul's day. It was like a a frontier outpost of the Roman Empire is what scholars say. Kind of like the Wild West. The Lystrans were generally uneducated people. It was much different than, than Iconium. Full of Jews, synagogues. Lystra might have not even had one synagogue. Consisted primarily of pagan Gentiles. And one of those Gentiles that they, they come into contact with that Luke records is a lame man who is listening to Paul preach. Look at verse 8. And there sat a certain man at Lystra 
impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet, and he leaped and walked. Now, does this sound familiar in the book of Acts? Do you remember Acts chapter 3? Peter and John go to the temple to pray. They see a lame man sitting by the gate, and they heal him. The response of the crowd in Acts 3 is they came around, and, and man, they, they were rejoicing, and they were, they were eager to hear the gospel. But the, the response from the Lystrans is very weird. It's very different. Uh, look at verses 8 through 10. I'm sorry, I just read verse 8 through 10. Verses 11 through 13. And when the people, that's the, the Lystrans, saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul uh, Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Are you getting this? In ignorance... The locals assume Paul and Barnabas are little G gods. Paul's Mercurius, that means the Greek god of oratory or the founder of speech. Barnabas is Jupiter, the chief god. Why did the Lystrans respond this way? Well, I'll tell you why. They didn't have any Old Testament context at all. They weren't Jewish people. They had nothing to reference when they went to the synagogue. They didn't have one. You know what their response was informed by? It was formed by this like well-known local myth. As legend had it, this is the myth. Uh, The gods, Jupiter and Mercurius, also known as Hermes and Zeus, descended to this region years earlier. Check this out. And they were seeking hospitality. But everyone in in the town rejected them except for one poor couple, Philemon and Bacchus. They took them in and treated them kindly. And the myth says that that those gods rewarded Philemon and Bacchus by transforming their cottage into this magnificent temple and letting them be the guardians of it. And then the same gods punished all the unwelcoming residents with a severe flood. You study it for yourself. I ain't making that up. I'm not that smart. That's the myth. These superstitious people of Lystra responded to the miracle with this, this, this weird idea because in their minds, these two missionaries are the gods they've always heard about. And so they want to be hospitable. They don't want to invite judgment on themselves. They want their cottage to be turned into a temple. And initially, Paul and Barnabas, they don't realize what's happening because we just read it. The Lystrans are speaking in their native tongue. But they eventually recognize that something's brewing as they see the priest of Jupiter arrive with garland and bulls for a sacrifice. And that's when Paul and Barnabas rush into the crowds and rend their garments and start sharing the true gospel about the true God. Verse 14 through 17. Come on, work hard with me tonight. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. And saying, sirs, why do ye do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness and that he did good. And gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Paul and Barnabas, 
They started rending their garments. That, that's symbolic of their disapproval. They were protesting that, that, that what these people were believing was blasphemy. And then they tried to stop the sacrifice. They said, don't call us gods. I love that. That's what Peter said whenever he went to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius like got on his knees and almost started worshiping Peter. And Peter's like, stand up, dude. I'm just a man. And Paul and Barnabas said, stop calling us God. We're just men. And you would do well to never treat your spiritual leaders like a God. Because they are clothed in flesh like you. And the moment you, you put one of us on a pedestal is the moment we're going to get knocked down and you're going to be really disappointed. You get what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm thankful for encouragement and, and, and we're thankful for, for prayer and love and, and, and respect. But, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are sinners saved by grace. So don't grovel at our feet. Not that you're tempted to do that. But, but I just love the spirit because we studied in Acts chapter 12 where, where Herod the Great, he did the opposite of these guys. Do you remember that? All of them gathered around and they were calling him the God. And he said, oh yeah, bring it on. I love this. And that's when God struck him dead. I'm here to tell you every pastor, pastoral staff member in here, we better not act like Herod. That's not a joke. I'm actually preaching like four or five of you. We ought, we ought to not act like Herod. We ought, to, we ought to stay mindful, stay humble, us and our wives, that we are made of flesh and bones, every single one of us. And as people are kind and people are complimentary and people uh, uh, revere our efforts and to lead them spiritually, we ought to stay humble and recognize we are men made out of flesh. The way Paul preached the gospel is really the, the, the point I want to make. Because... When he started preaching the gospel, he did it in a very interesting way. You don't see the Romans wrote in there. You don't see a prepackaged plan or strategy or speech. He's very, very creative based on who his audience was. Lystrans, no synagogue, no Old Testament context. They did not know the Torah like the people in Iconium did. So Paul adjusted And here's the lesson we learned. We ought to endure with flexible and faithful evangelism. I want you to get this. Paul began to preach a sermon to them that took into account their different background. And so he started to explain the basics of God. Hear me, hear me, hear me. In this instance, Paul actually didn't start with the Bible. Did you notice that? I think it was verse 15. Yeah, he, he, he said, you should turn from these vanities under the living God, that's repentance, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. He started with nature. Paul's flexible in the way he presents Christ to different people who hear him. Now, that doesn't mean he compromised the message of the gospel. He clearly preached to them, turn your back on your gods. Repentance. They're vain, he says. But he packages the gospel in a way that's intelligible to his audience. Here's what he does. He tells them some things that set the living God apart from their worthless idols. He tells them God's the creator. He starts with something they could see and relate to. He tells them something about God's goodness and provision. The living God's the one that sends the rain and satisfies our soul with food. What's he doing? He's contrasting the goodness of the true God with the harshness of their pagan gods. 
The myth was if they weren't hospitable to their gods, they got judgment via a, a flood. They feared their gods in an unhealthy way. So Paul props up the true and living God as a God that will bless them. As a, a God that is good to them. I want you to get the lesson in evangelism. Paul was faithful to the gospel, but flexible in how he presented it. I think we can do the same thing. Oftentimes, if you're talking to someone who is raised in church like I was, you may be able to start with the Bible says. But other times, you may want to lead in with something like this. Hey, can I tell you my story about how Jesus turned my life around? Watch your, you never stop at your story. I get nervous when people say, just learn your testimony and that's enough. No, it's not. Your testimony is not the gospel. But it's a good contact point to start with. Because people love a good story. Sometimes you might need to start with nature, like Paul did. Man, you know, as I look around this world, I just get this, this feeling that there has to be a God who made all of this. What do you think? What I'm saying is that, that you want to find a contact point with the person you're trying to share the gospel with. What are they interested in spiritually right now? What has piqued their curiosity? What are they going through in their life that might cause them to look to Christ at this point in time? Are you following me? Take a verbal walk down some of those paths, then connect that conversation to Jesus. Use what they can identify with and understand to point them to their need for Christ. In other words, to reach a pagan post-Christian culture, we have to speak the language they understand. So drop the four-syllable theological terms. They don't get them and they aren't impressed. Nobody's impressed by something they can't understand. You ever been talking to somebody and they're like, can you tell me what that means? It's like that just ruined the whole momentum of the conversation because you thought you were really cool for saying that. But we're not. People aren't impressed if they can't understand what we're saying. I read a story about Don and Carol Richardson, their mission to the Sawi people of New Guinea. This is so interesting. Over time, the Richardsons learned that the tribe had a way to overcome enmity between warring factions. This is crazy. One party must be willing to give a son to another tribe. That's how they reconciled. I only have one, man. I mean, if I had two, I'd, I'd just pick the worst one and, and give them away. But I, have, I only have one. As they say, as long as the child was loved and cared for, then they would have the peace restored. Could you imagine doing that in our church? I mean, I would intentionally get in, a, in a, like a, a, a squabble with Tanner so I could have Teller. <laughs> Teller, would you like me to be your father? That's good. Amen. Yes. The Richardsons used this cultural like, communication point to, to represent the gospel to, to the Sawi people. And what they did is they, they propped Christ up as being God's peace child, sent for our redemption. And it became kind of the foundational element of their sharing Christ. I think that's a great illustration of what it looks like to remain faithful, preach Jesus, but to be flexible at the same time. I, I, I think that we can do that. Unfortunately, though, Paul's presentation, even as creative and personal as it was, didn't stop the people from their desire to make sacrifices or to continue in their idolatry. Even worse, a group of Paul's opponents heard what he was doing in Lystra and and they went to persecute him. Look at verse 18. And when these sayings scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came, verse 19, and there came through their certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. They traveled all this way just to beat up the preachers 
who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Let's not skip past this church. Let's not skip past it because we just hear preachers getting stoned in Acts. You understand what this was? You've been hit with a rock. I'm talking about a big stone. Not from long distance. And the stone does not release from the hand of the one. It's not a throw, it's a hit. Right on your skull. On your bones, on your back, on your legs, on your knees, on your face. It literally was a death sentence. They would take big stones. And they would just drop them on the head. Of them. And if their body was still moving, they would take another big stone and drop it on their head. Drop them on their chest to get their chest cavity to cave in. And they had done such a fine job at this that they supposed Paul had been dead. They drug him out of the city. Like a lifeless corpse. Drug him out of the city in a dishonorable way. Can you imagine the people looking outside of their houses, watching the missionary get drug out of the city, bloody and beaten and supposedly dead? But verse 20 says Paul wasn't dead. The disciples stood round about him trying to make the funeral plans. And he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Are you seeing this? The disciples are trying to figure out how they're going to play the, pay the funeral home for this thing. What kind of coffin are we going to get? How are we going to deal with this dead body? I mean, facetious, but in all reality, I think they're mourning. Maybe giving testimonies about how great a missionary that he was. When all of a sudden, one eye opens. You ever thought about that? Looking at somebody in the coffin, what if they opened an eye? I'm telling you right now. I, I would touch that sucker so I got the credit for raising him from the dead. One, one eye opens. And then another eye opens. And then his body starts to move. You know what I have? Tell her you're going to like this, buddy. Tell her you're going to like this. Stay awake. You know what I have in mind here? Is professional wrestling. I watched in the days of Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. What I feel were two of the most dramatic, successful, theatrical storytellers in the ring you could ever have. And, and those guys would, would get put in a chokehold. And they, their bodies would just go limp. Like they just got stoned. Like, but not, <laughs> I meant stoned in the, in the King James language. <laughs> see, see, English evolves. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I was, I was telling you a story about Hulk Hogan and, and his, you know, his body's limp. He's got on this, so the ref goes and he, he holds up one hand, puts it down. Anybody ever watch this? How many people believed it? Thank you. How many people knew it wasn't real, but you believed it anyway? Just because that's what people do. Thank you. You can watch Marvel films and all these stupid, ridiculous superheroes, but you can't put your mind there during professional wrestling? Get a grip, man. Get a life. Second time goes up, just went. But you remember what happened the third time? Uh, it, it always went halfway down. <laughs> this is how I imagine an Apostle Paul. 
Let me hear you, Barnabas. You know what I mean? Now, just imagine his whole body shaking and he gets up and starts pouncing against the ring. Let's go to Derby, boys. <laughs> I got a killer headache, but let's go to Derby. I don't know how it went. Luke doesn't record that. I'm going to talk to Luke about that because he's such a detailed dude. But he doesn't say how that happened. But it did. And we get this simple, simple truth. That, look, look, this, this endurance that we see in Derby. Because he, he goes to Derby and verse 20, 21 says, they preach the gospel to that city. Don't catch this phrase, don't miss this phrase in the last part of verse 20. And the next day, after he got, the next day after he got stoned, he departed from Barnabas too, with Barnabas to Derby. Are you getting this? He was dragged out of the city. And the next day, look at a map, he traveled 60 miles to Derby. That's like you getting hit upside the head. No, let's make it more, more realistic. That's like you, that's like you getting your gallbladder taken out. And it was gangrene, and they thought you were dead. And then they let you out of the hospital, and the very next day you wake up and you walk north, 60 miles to Garden City, to preach a sermon. Can you imagine this? My question is, what would motivate Paul to do that? Dude, take a break. I'll tell you what, it was the gospel. Paul was doing this for the gospel's sake. He cared more. Read read his writings. He cared more about the salvation of people than his own well-being. I think that Paul learned this very early on when the Lord spoke to him in Acts chapter 9. Here's what the Lord said. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way. This is right when he got saved. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles Lystra and kings and the children of Israel. Watch, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He was called to this. Are you hearing me? He was called to get beat over the head with a rock. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't pull the wool over our eyes? He told the disciples, consider the cost. Don't just sign up to be my follower. Realize what you're signing up for. It involves a cross. He could have picked a dove. He could have picked a rainbow. He could have picked a shepherd's staff. But he chose a cross. And then Paul, he punches with Paul. He says, Paul, it's a cross for you. It's a rock for you. It's a rod for you. It's a prison cell for you. It's the stocks for you. It's not a dove. It's not going to be easy. I'm calling you to suffer. For who? For my name's sake. For the gospel's sake. Why did Paul get up after almost being dead and go to Derby? Because he knew this was his life. The salvation of people was more important than his own comfort and shame on us. For the things that put us on the spiritual bench. Shame on us for the things that cause us to be sidelined in ministry. Shame on us for the things that embitter us to the point where we won't even come back to church. 
let alone share the good news. The kind of things us Western people get mad about and get offended over. Paul would have a a letter to write to us today. If he was still writing the scripture. And it would say something like this. I got beat with stones. And you're mad because someone didn't tell you thank you. I was dead for preaching the gospel, miraculously healed by God, and went to Derby, 60 miles on foot, and preached it again. And you won't even come to church because you're tired? I went to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue to reach Jewish people that I know would want to persecute me. But you won't even invite your co-worker to church. He would look at us. He would write a letter. And maybe the letter would be called this. Weak evangelism. Weak Christians. No endurance. No fortitude. No purpose. And he would say, here's the heart of the issue. We have gotten cold to the gospel. We no longer live our lives for his name's sake. We live it for ours. And when we live our lives for our name's sake, that's when we get offended. That's when we get unfaithful. That's when we get petty. But when we're living our lives for his name's sake, throw stones at us. Gossip about us. Who cares if I was gone till late on Saturday night? I'm showing up to church. I live my life for his name's sake, not my name's sake. That's why we exist. That's where we get the next lesson that we ought to endure through physical trials because we love the gospel. We love the gospel. I'm not telling you just to get tough. I'm telling you to fall in love with the gospel. When you realize everything that Jesus is, when you realize everything that Jesus has done for you, that's why sometimes I think the church is full of unsaved members. I'm genuinely saying that from my heart. I'm not trying to scare you. I mean that. Unregenerated members. Because it's like there's no desire for the gospel. It can be sidelined so easy. They can be spiritually inactive for so long. And we got our brother Paul. Whose life was full of suffering. But he still endures. Where is our endurance, church? Where is our endurance? Sometimes we even stop giving to missions just because times get tough. Can't even financially endure. Where is our endurance for the gospel's sake? 
Do you love your comfort more than lost souls? Do you love your convenience more than lost souls? Do you love your extra money more than lost souls? What are we telling our children? When we pour so much money into this sport and that event and this tournament and we miss two or three Sundays out of the month. What are we telling them? We're telling them that life is not about his namesake. We're telling them life's about our ambitions. We got to get you a scholarship, kid. That means we got to travel all around the place to get you better at this. Because this is what life's about. No, that's not what life's about. And don't be surprised when your kid's 18 years old and has no understanding of the gospel. And no love for the gospel. And has never shared the gospel one time with any of their friends. And the moment they're able to choose, they don't come to a gospel preaching church the moment they get the choice. Don't be surprised whenever you didn't prop up the gospel to them for the first 18 years of their life. If you prospered, if you propped up this sport and, and this event and this scholarship and this job, hey, don't be surprised whenever they get to 18 and all of a sudden don't love Jesus. The truth is they probably never did. And I'm burdened about that tonight. That's nowhere found in my notes. I'm just pastorally sharing a heart with you tonight. I don't want to lose a generation of this church. Because parents don't put their foot down. And say, we're going to be in church. We're going to be hearing the gospel. When you come home every night, we're reading the word. We're in it every day. We're serving in ministries together. We're giving to the church. We're giving to missions. We're going to be at missions conference every night. If, if, that's not the reason why kids would stay. But if we don't do that, we almost guarantee they won't. At least make the gospel and the Lord's work and the Lord's name. Like center focus in your home. Well, whose job? Sir, husband. Father, that's on you. That's on you. Don't make your your wife read the word every night. Don't make your wife prioritize church every week. That's on us. That's not even really the point. (laughs) It just came out. Here's the point. We can't let our physical trials sideline us from gospel ministry. I believe the greatest ministry comes from the deepest levels of pain. That's what I believe. I believe when we hurt the worst, sometimes we minister the best. I really believe that. Why do you believe that? Because I saw my mom and dad in 2018 never hurt like they hurt in 2018. But I've seen how it did not sideline them when they lost their son. And now God is using them to minister through their pain all around the country. You understand last Sunday was the very first Sunday my dad was in fellowship all year long. 
That's how busy he is in gospel ministry, ministering out of his deepest pain. Do you think he likes going and telling the story of how my brother died just a few years ago, nearly every weekend? You think he likes that? You think that somehow that doesn't make him relive that night in his mind all over again? That's why he wrote the book. I'm never getting over this. I just got to get through it. Because it's a sermon every weekend from him. But his greatest ministry, I would contend with you, his greatest ministry of his life has been birthed out of his deepest pain. And I know this church well enough to know that some of you are going through physical trials. Don't quit. Don't sit on the sideline. I don't know if that physical trial will disable you from doing what you've once done, but it will not disqualify you from doing something. Be an encourager. Be a mentor. In accessory prayer for our missionaries and our young people and their parents and our students. I can give you a whole list of people you can pray for. If that's all you can do, but you can be a prayer warrior every day, that is a ministry worth noting tonight. Don't let your physical pain cause you to stop. Endure. Find a way to minister through your pain. All right, we got one more. I know it's long. In Iconium, we learn how to endure with boldness and wisdom. In Lystra, we learn how to endure with flexible evangelism. In Derby, we learn how to endure in physical trials. Finally, we see endurance on the return trip. So that's found in verse 21 through 28. Are you still with me? Let, let's land the plane, but, but have some patience here. Verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church. We'll talk about that a little bit next Sunday night probably. And had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed throughout Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. When they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into Talia. And then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were coming and gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them. How he had opened the door of faith in the Gentiles. And there they abode a long time with the disciples. Now, I want you to see a map real quick. Because this is going to show you, this is going to make you respect what I just read. So, <clears throat> I don't know how well you can see it, but do you guys see up there in, in, in this? Do you see up there in this corner right here, Antioch? All right. That's where they started, Acts 13. They went to Seleucian, Salamis, on the island of Cyprus there, Paphos. They went all the way up, I'm getting dizzy, all the way up uh, to Perga. And they went Pamphylia. Pisidian Antioch, that's different from uh, Antioch, Syria. Pisidian Antioch, they got persecuted there. Uh, Through Galatia and Iconium, we just read about Iconium. They went down to uh, Lystra, we just read about that's where he got stoned. Then they went to Derby. Now you tell me, if if you're traveling, right, and your home base is in Antioch, Syria over here, and you're in Derby, which way are you going? You're going through Paul's hometown of Tarsus saying hey to grandma and grandpa and, and going east there to Antioch. But do you see what they did? They went from Derby and they retraced their steps. 
and went all the way back through Iconium and Lystra and Pisidian Antioch and Pamphylia into Italia and then came, took a, took a boat. I don't think they swam. Took a boat back to Antioch, Syria. Do you see that? Are you getting that? Why do they do that? That does not make logistical sense. What were they doing? They were going back through these cities in order to strengthen the Christians and establish churches where they had preached the gospel. Why? You've got to get this. Because Paul and Barnabas recognized that the key to the sustained growth of Christianity was not the conversion of individuals. It was the establishment and growth of New Testament, local, healthy churches. If all they were interested in doing was traveling and doing these gospel crusades and preaching the gospel as many people as possible and calling for a response and then moving on to the next football stadium, they could have gone to all these other kind of cities. But instead, they turned their first missionary journey into a round trip. Last lesson tonight, endure in your devotion to the local church. See, the church is still God's plan for reaching the world. Did you know that? I'm thankful for people who get saved watching YouTube videos because I believe people do get saved watching those. I'm saved for people, I, I'm, I am saved, but, but I'm thankful for people who get saved watching live stream because I believe people get saved watching live stream. Some of our members got saved uh, watching live stream over, over COVID, two of them. I be, I'm so thankful for one-on-one encounters that people have outside the church. I'm thankful for like the, the old Billy Graham crusades of old. I am not against those. Great glory still does some of those, so long as it's a complete and thorough gospel. I don't think that's a bad idea entirely. But hear me, God's plan for the sustained growth of his people starts and ends with the local church. The church is where we grow spiritually. The church is where we glorify God together. The church is where we unify with other Christians on the Lord's day. Then we are empowered to go out and do the mission throughout the week. Sometimes I meet people who say that they're Christians, but have no interest in getting involved in a local church. That's why I'm thankful we announced the the membership of two new families today, the Casadas and the McConnells. They realize you don't do the Christian life by yourself. You do it with Christians in a local church. The apostles did not think this individualistic Christian Christianity like is so popular in our world. Everywhere they preach the gospel, what did they do? People got saved, then they baptized them, and they either added them to an already established church, Acts 2, or they planted a church for those Christians to be involved in. I would encourage you to endure in your commitment to the local church when it comes to your evangelism. If all you are concerned about is telling people about Christ, and that's it, you've stopped short of the Great Commission. We are instructed in the same great commission, not only to preach the gospel, but to teach them to deserve all things that Christ has commanded. It's called discipleship. You ought to be just as passionate about getting your new convert to church, baptized, discipled, and assimilated as you were to lead them to Christ in the first place. If all you ever do is just say, pray this prayer to me, pray this prayer to me, pray this prayer to me, pray this prayer to me. I don't know if you really care about souls. 
If all you do, children's church worker, vacation Bible school worker, if all you do is just get a kid to the foyer and have him pray a prayer, I'm not really, and that's it, that's it. I'm not really sure you really care about the kid. If all we do is just attract a big group of teenagers on Wednesday nights and get them to pray a prayer and then just kind of whatever, take them to camp and get them to pray a prayer and then whatever. I don't know if you really care about kids. We stop short of God's plan to build the church. Yes, we ought to be very enthusiastic about sharing the gospel. But hear me tonight. You ought to be just as enthusiastic about going and setting up an appointment with them to begin discipleship. To plugging them into ministry. To teaching them and shepherding. Here's, here's what I found out. It's much easier to have one conversation with somebody than go on to the next person. Than to have one conversation and now have to help them clean up their messy life. And us pastors are guilty of it. We can get someone to the point where they realize they need Jesus. But what about all the habits they need to break with the power of God's grace in their life? Are we there to walk them through that? Are you hearing me? What about the Sunday school kid who has to go home to parents in a trailer park who don't even know Jesus? They won't let him get baptized. They're Roman Catholic. They won't sign that paper of agreement. We just going to like put their name on our gospel gun? Yeah, I got me another one. Another notch in the old gospel belt. Move on to the next kid the next Sunday? Are we going to do that? Are we going to try to maybe take him and some of our other church kids? By the way, we ought to be blending those kids more often. Taking them with, with a couple of other Christian school kids or whatever the case might be and taking them to the water park? Cake to McDonald's and reading through and studying through the gospel of Mark with them together. See, Sunday school teachers, really easy to take a prepackaged uh, 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 lesson at 945 and teach it until 1030 and say, adios. It's a whole nother thing to devote yourself to getting them an active member of Fellowship Baptist Church. It's a whole nother ball game. Parents, hear me. It's one thing to lead your kid to Christ. It's a whole nother thing to disciple them. We can teach them the gospel. And I think sometimes when, when we see them saved and baptized, it's like parents go, whew, got one behind me. What? It's just now beginning, man. Dads and moms, we got to be teachers. I'm belaboring the point, but it's because I didn't get to preach this morning. I had a hard time finding an application for this because we're not missionaries, right? So let me just, let me land the plane with this. Three statements. Number one, I think we ought to pray for our missionaries. I don't know if, if any of our missionaries are getting stoned by rocks. I don't know if any of them are, are suffering death right now. But I know some of our missionaries have to meet in secret. I know some of our mis- missionaries are going to uncomfortable places like Paul and Barnabas. When's the last time you prayed for one of them? We're going to give you a booklet. Uh, here in a week or so, whenever those come in before missions conference, you're going to get a full list of our, our missionaries. And I hope that you will take it serious to pray for missionaries. Pray, pray for the persecution they might suffer. Pray for their homesickness. Pray for health complications. Pray, pray that they don't give up because in the foreign mission field, you don't see a lot of growth. Second, you need to give to missions. Come on, church, you need to give to missions. That's why we have a missions conference. 
unapologetically, I say, this is about money. 100%. If we didn't have to rally the troops to give, we, we wouldn't have this kind of conference. This is, the, this is the bottom line of it. We've got to raise money to get missionaries to the foreign field, period. Germany ain't letting them in for free. There's not free groceries in Mexico. Right? We got to give. If you're not going to go and I'm not going to go, we've got to pray and we've got to give. You're supposed to reach the world. How are you going to do that in liberal Kansas? Give. That's your job. That's my job. So if a missions conference speaker comes, Michael Jones, and he preaches on money, that's okay. Our heart needs to be moved. Why? To to give money we don't have? No, you can't give money you don't have. But to reprioritize your spending and your saving so as to be able to give money you do have. To use wisdom. For your heart to be stirred and say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing that with my money and I'm going to start doing this with my money. That's what the missions conference is about. After seeing a missionary journey like that, souls being saved, missionaries as real life heroes who endure for the gospel's sake, you should want to give to help them. Number three, endure in your personal witness. Go out this week. And just know you're not going to get a rock thrown at you. So you have no excuse. Would you agree with that? You're not going to die. You have no excuse. You will not be in prison. You have no excuse. I would almost say if you use wisdom, you won't even lose your job. If you use wisdom. Now you stand on your desk and start reading John 3.16 to a public school. You might get probation. I don't know what you'll get. But if you use wisdom, I bet you you won't even lose your job. For sharing Christ. Or mentioning him in your conversation. I don't know what God spoke to you about tonight. It was kind of a fire, fire hose approach. You probably feel like you've been drinking from a fire hydrant for the last hour and a half. But I hope that you'll respond by just saying, God, help me to endure. Endure in my prayer for missionaries. Endure in my giving for missionaries. Endure in my personal witness this week. Let's stand to our feet. Let's fill an altar.